Hi, Dave Renmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1210. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 17. This is being recorded on October 27th of the year 2021. Before we get into the program, a few quick notes. Links at the top of each program description, and each For the Record program is turned into a long written description in order to make this admittedly pedantic form of broadcasting uh, less opaque to uh, listeners. Uh, at the top of each program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post, there are links to do the following. First, you can subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Frackle, some by other people. Uh, just today, uh, Tara Frackle has put up a post which, uh, if, if a lot of what I'm talking about in this series seems like it's a long time ago and far away, it's exactly what we are seeing. The milieu involved with the destabilization of Hong Kong and uh, the covert actions against China is the same milieu that was involved in January 27th. Uh, GTV, Steve Bannon, J. Kyle Bass, Tommy Hicks Jr., people we spoke about in FTR numbers of 111, or 1111 and 1112. Uh, these are the people behind the corporate operations, may very well be involved with the COVID op, and are certainly involved with the destabilization of Hong Kong and China, and betting against those economies in the equity markets. So, one of those links, subscribe to the comments because there is so much going on. In order to be properly informed, you're going to want to do that. Another of the links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that Sister Station WFMU is making. So, if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, uh, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting for the record. And the other link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my uh, 42 plus years on the air, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books. The newest iteration of the flash drive is going to begun, be begun or will be underway shortly. It is going to be absolutely up to date, probably through for the record 1213. But I think we are in seriously bad shape. I don't think we're going to make it. And I think that uh, listeners would do well to take it upon themselves to become repositories for this information. Now, to the subject material at hand. We are winding down this series, and as we uh, do so, we are going to uh, bring things right on up through the Cold War, the hot wars within the Cold War, Vietnam, Korea, and so forth, and right up to date, right on up through the COVID op. Yes, uh, the virus did come from a laboratory. No, the, la the laboratory is not in China. And no, it didn't leak uh, <laughs> tons of information about that. Uh, however, uh, we will get to that uh, once again when I update the Oswald Institute of Virology, as I call it. Now, uh, 
Turning again to a book that has been a mainstay in this series, uh, a very important book. Uh, it may or may not still be in print. I don't think it is, but some people said it has been. There is certainly a Kindle edition on Amazon, and you can certainly obtain it from used book services. The book is The Song Dynasty, capital S-O-O-N-G, by Sterling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Harper and Will, copyright uh, by Sterling Seagrave, 1985. Uh, when this book came out, a hit team was put together in Taiwan to come murder Sterling and Peggy Seagrave and uh, the a friend of theirs who was a high-ranking, or an acquaintance who was a high-ranking CIA official, warned them about that, told them basically to split. So they moved onto a sailboat and stayed ahead of their pursuers uh, for quite some time. So uh, the point being, they paid very dearly uh, to get this book out, uh, although he, she is not listed as a co-author. Peggy Seagrave had much to do with the uh, writing of this book. Now, we are going to take a look, uh, we're going to take a, a little more look at the background of a State Department hack who unfortunately had a great deal to do with shaping U.S. Far Eastern Division policy. That man's name was Stanley Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, and sadly, Mr. Hornbeck uh, couldn't tell a dirt road from a chicken with lips. His background is discussed in the Sung Dynasty. I'm going to uh, repeat this and uh, give a little more of his background. The man officially responsible for making U.S.-China policy, Stanley Hornbeck, the doyen of states, Far Eastern Division had only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China and had been out of touch personally for many years. Hornbeck was one of those basking hammer drives at the State Department who, having reached a place in the sun, lie coiled in wait for any creature that might disturb its repose. He had spent only four years of his life in China, teaching in government colleges at the time of the 1911 revolution. He had scant knowledge of the language, even less of the country or its people. What little he knew, he published in 1916 in an opaque book titled Contemporary Politics in the Far East, which quickly found its way to oblivion. As an army captain during World War I, he attained a role of, quote, expert, unquote, on the Far East, lent his insight to the dismal resolution of Asian matters in the peace settlement of 1919 and at the Washington Conference in 1921, which further resolved the world's balance of power and set the stage for World War II. On this dubious basis, Hornbeck got a job as a lecturer on Asia at Harvard in the 20s, published another book that did not stand up to serious scrutiny, and parlayed the book and his Harvard position into an appointment in 1928 as Chief of Far Eastern Affairs at the Department of State. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the U.S. gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from foreign service officers to policy planners at state and to the presidential cabinet. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chiang Kai-shek and once stated that, quote, The United States' far eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. 
It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975. The whistle stops along the way at Peking, Kwamoi, Matsu, and the Yalu River. I think that Hornbeck's statement is true in an unfortunate way that I don't think he really intended. And what we're going to be doing in uh, the concluding few programs in this series is seeing how that Far Eastern policy did indeed proceed on a a lineal uh, progression like a railroad track for all to see and uh, the disasters that resulted from that. Because indeed, not only American-Asian policy, particularly during the Cold War, but much of what the country has become comes from the things that the unsavory seeds that were planted when we backed Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist government uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s against all uh, reason, really, uh, because uh, the man was not only corrupt, not only a fascist, but he really was about his CB as it gets and his alliances with the Japanese, which uh, later were uh, doubled down on by the U.S., as we've looked at in uh, AFA Program 11 and uh, for the record programs 1095, among others. And as we came back to in this series, uh, the U.S. practice of well, not practice, but uh, in the after World War II, the U.S. used thousands, you know, tens of thousands of Japanese troops to fight the Chinese communists. And uh, it is difficult to imagine anything that would have more effectively driven the Chinese people into the arms of the Chinese communists. And uh, sadly, Americans had not been told about that. Now, What we're going to be doing in this program is taking a look at one of the stops on that railroad track that uh, is alluded to to here by Sterling Seagrave, namely uh, the stop in Saigon in 1975, for indeed the U.S. war in Vietnam was part of our Far Eastern Division policy, as we looked at in this series, and as we looked at before the record 1142, Colonel L. Flesher Prouty was in Okinawa uh, observing the enormous buildup of military materiel for the invasion of Japan, then when the atomic bombs were dropped, and the peace treaty was signed on the deck of the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945. That material was destined, half of it was destined for Korea, and the other half for Indochina. So, uh, yes, indeed, our Far Eastern Division policy had already been laid out on that railroad track. Now, uh, we're also going to be taking a look at uh, the gravitas and the growth of Henry Luce and his Time Incorporated Publishing Empire. Uh, as we have seen in many programs, The Guns of November Part 3, our long series of uh, programs with Jim DiGemio and his landmark text, Destiny Betrayed, one of the things that led to American involvement in Vietnam was the assassination of President 
Kennedy. Uh, JFK had uh, in uh, NSA 263 in October of 1963 had uh, called for a phased withdrawal of all U.S. forces by Christmas of 1965. Then Kennedy was killed on a Friday and on the Sunday after that, the day on which Jack Ruby assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, the National Security Council and the fledgling Johnson administration met, canceled the troop withdrawal, scheduled the 34A program of covert operations against North Vietnam, and those were codified in, for the record, 273. And the U.S. was off and running on that railroad track, and the result was the Vietnam War. Again, I can't stress this strongly enough. I think it off the top of my head, for the record, 978 excerpts the material from the Guns of November Part 3. I will put a link in the written description for this program. But as we take a look at one of the stops on that railroad track referred to by the late unfortunate Stanley Hornbeck, uh, namely the stop at Saigon in 1975, one must of necessity investigate or discuss the assassination of JFK because it was his killing that permitted the train to keep running on that track. We should remember that in 1963, it was only 10 years after the conclusion of the Korean War, and the although China and Vietnam had a long history of enmity because uh, Vietnam had long struggled against Chinese domination, going back long before the U.S. existed. In fact, the point of view toward Vietnam as it was toward Korea was basically, as a recent article from Fairness and Accuracy and Reportings magazine put it, uh, the yellow peril meets the red scare. And as someone that lived through that time, uh, Vietnam was seen as an extension of Chinese communists. And uh, the necessity of fighting Chinese communists was seen uh, as uh, necessitating the fighting against the Vietnamese. The domino theory uh, was extant, and again, just look up domino theory and uh, you'll find out more about it. But one cannot discuss uh, the railroad track, uh, the railway line of U.S. Asian policy and its disastrous stop in Saigon, i.e. Uh, Vietnam, without talking about the assassination of JFK, because JFK uh, was opposed to U.S. involvement in Vietnam. He was going to, he was in the process of pulling U.S. troops out when he was killed, and the entire debacle ensued after that. One of the things that is important to understand about how Chiang Kai-shek, who basically was a monster, um, an evil, murderous, corrupt, dope-dealing, I mean, just about everything you could imagine, came to be seen along with his wife, uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, nay Mei Ling Sung of the Sung Dynasty, they came to be seen as basically these larger-than-life figures, a pun-intended life magazine being the uh, one of the 
signature flagship periodicals of Time Incorporated by, uh, put out by Henry Luce. Uh, they were larger than life figures. They were sort of like Mr. and Mrs. Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons for that, in addition to the China lobby as a whole, was the, uh, beatification of Chiang Kai-shek and his wife by Henry Luce. Luce loved uh, nicknames he called the Generalissimo, the Gisimo, and Madame Chankashek, the Misimo. So it was the Gisimo and the Misimo. And they were, again, they were absolutely beatified by Henry Luce and Time Incorporated and uh, his the various publications, as we have seen. Then Life Magazine, along with the rest of the Luce Empire, as we have also seen, became a major element of the China lobby during the Cold War. And it was in many ways the Loose Empire, Time Incorporated, and Life Magazine in particular that served in a key way as the American public's eyes and ears on the assassination of JFK. Uh, we're going to get into uh, Time uh, Incorporated and Life Magazine, Henry Luce and C.B. Jackson's handling of the Zapruder film in just a minute. However, uh, a couple of timely developments vis-a-vis, one of them sad but not altogether unexpected, at least uh, within this time frame. Uh, there has been yet another delay in releasing documents about the JFK assassination. Uh, many news outlets had that. Among them, Yahoo News, which featured an article from the very conservative Washington Examiner on October 22nd of 2021. The article is by Daniel Chaitin, C-H-A-I-T-I-N, and Misty Severi, S-E-V-E-R-I. Biden delays release of secret JFK assassination files. President Joe Biden ordered yet another delay in the release of secret files related to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, yet to see the light of day more than 50 years after his death. It's almost 60 now. A White House memo signed by Biden said, quote, temporary continued postponement is necessary to protect against identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in immediate disclosure. Well, I'm going to cut right across the diamond from first to third. Uh, at this stage of the game, just what in bloody hell does Joe Biden or anyone else think is going to compromise military intelligence or law enforcement procedure by disclosing uh, the information about the assassination of JFK. This is more than a little suspicious, and particularly at this stage of the game, so much is known about what actually happened. And again, it reminds me of that old uh, gambit in the Looney Tunes cartoons where Bugs Bunny is uh, in a haunted house, and he knocks on the door and goes, Nyeh, anybody in there? And the voice says, No, there's nobody in here. Uh, Obviously, they're delaying. The, the, the excuse is that the review was delayed by COVID. The explanation, obviously, is that there is information in there that has to be sanitized, lest it uh, 
add even further to the awareness that, yeah, there was a coup d'etat and there was a conspiracy behind the assassination of JFK. Yesterday, which was October 26th of 2021, one of the leading figures in American comedy, someone who literally revolutionized American comedy and who also was deeply involved with Jim Garrison's investigation of the JFK assassination, passed away at the age of 94. That gentleman's name was Mort Saul, S-A-H-L, and his obituary in the New York Times of Wednesday, October 27th of 2021 was, well, perhaps uh, predictably uh, oblique, shall we say. Boy, I'm being tactful here. Uh, It was written by Bruce Weber, and it takes its shots at Mort Saul. Mort Saul was in many ways on top of the showbiz world. He and many, as Novichir, Mort Saul, whose biting commentary redefined stand-up, dies at 94. Again, by Bruce Weber uh, in the Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, Western edition of the New York Times. Mort Saul did indeed redefine stand-up comedy, and he also was an unpaid investigator in the assassination of President Kennedy in New Orleans D.A. Jim Garrison's office. Uh, very quickly, we looked at the Garrison investigation in, among other programs, the 25-hour series that we did uh, with Jim Jamiel, the author of Destiny Betrayed. And to make a very, very, very long story, very, very short, uh, Jonathan Bramwell, who was the assistant counsel for the House Assassin, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, said of Clay Shaw, the U.S. intelligence officer who was the focal point of Garrison's investigation after David Ferry was uh, found dead, he said that uh, Clay Shaw was either one of the planners of or a cutout to the planners of the assassination. That again from Jonathan Brownwell, the assistant counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations for the New Orleans area. Uh, Deputy CIA Director for Counterintelligence, Ray Roca, R-O-C-H-A, who was the acknowledged uh, expert within the CIA on the JFK assassination, as we now know from uh, declassified documents, uh, opined that if the Garrison investigation proceeded, that Jim Garrison would obtain a conviction of Clay Shaw for the assassination of JFK. There was a CIA task force in New Orleans helping to interdict that trial. Uh, the New York Times obituary by Bruce Weber has the following commentary, skipping down. Mr. Saul worked on radio and on local television in Los Angeles, but he didn't help his cause with what some felt was an obsession with the Kennedy assassination. His performances began to include reading scornfully from the Warren Commission report. And he worked as an unpaid investigator for Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney who claimed to have uncovered secret evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the assassin, and who accused a New Orleans businessman, Clay Shaw, of conspiring to murder the president. 
No convincing evidence, secret or otherwise, was produced at Mr. Shaw's trial, and the jury acquitted him in less than an hour. Quote, I spent years talking with people, Garrison, notably about the Kennedy assassination, Mr. Saul wrote in Heartland, a score-settling dyspeptic memoir published in 1976, quote, and I was said to have hurt my career by being in bad company. I don't think that Jack Kennedy is bad company. I don't think that Jim Garrison is bad company. I learned something, though. The people that I went to Hollywood parties with are not my comrades. The men I was in the trenches with in New Orleans are my comrades, unquote. He concluded, I think Jack Kennedy cries from the grave for justice, unquote. Well, yes, he does, and so do the millions of people who died in the Vietnam War, U.S. soldiers, uh, Viet Cong combatants, uh, South Vietnamese soldiers, uh, North Vietnamese combatants, and God knows how many millions of civilians in uh, North and South Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. It was a bloodbath, and uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Vietnam War time permitting later in this program. But again... One of the main reasons that JFK was killed is because he was going to derail that train that was running on the straight line. He was going to pull the U.S. out of Vietnam. His assassination kept that rail line moving on a straightaway path, and uh, the Vietnam War was one of the things that resulted. Henry Luce and Time Incorporated were centrally involved in uh, misrepresenting the uh, Kennedy assassination to the American people. In that New York Times obit, uh, it says that no evidence, uh, secret or otherwise, there was a ton of evidence, uh, secret or otherwise, and although the jury could not convict Clay Shaw, uh, recall that when he was being booked, Clay Shaw, who used the alias Clay Bertrand, could not have, he, he testified to Officer Habighorst of the New Orleans PD that uh, one of his aliases was Clay Bertrand, but Judge Haggerty would not permit that to be introduced into evidence. One of the things that the jury in the Garrison case was shown was the Zapruder film. And uh, testimony was obtained in the Garrison case uh, from Colonel Pierre Fink, who was at the autopsy. And Pierre Fink testified under oath that he was ordered by an unnamed superior officer not to dissect the neck wound in President Kennedy. That is proof under oath in a court of law of conspiracy. The jury concluded that there definitely had been a conspiracy behind President Kennedy's assassination, but they could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Clay Shaw was involved. But uh, Bruce Weber does not mention that in that obituary. Had uh, a lot of things uh, gone differently, maybe he could have done that. Again, for a detailed analysis of Jim Garrison's investigation, uh, the massive 25-hour series uh, of interviews with Jim Diagemio about his landmark text, uh, Destiny Betrayed, will give you a good, good, uh, well, basically an excellent view of Garrison's investigation.
Now, uh, we have spoken in this series about Henry Luce's anointing of Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek. He portrayed them again as almost like Mr. and Mrs. Jesus Christ. Henry Luce also became a major journalistic element of the China lobby, as we have seen, and Henry Luce had much to do with manipulating the American people's understanding of the assassination of JFK. And it was that assassination that put America back on that straight railway line of Far Eastern Division policy that uh, the late unfortunate Stanley Hornbeck alluded to. Uh, we are going to take a look now at the handling of the Zapruder film. Abraham Zapruder was in Dallas, Texas, and made a home movie of the assassination. Life magazine of uh, Henry, the Henry Luce Time Incorporated Publishing Empire purchased the Zapruder film. The guy who did it actually was the, uh, he died very recently at the age of 92. He went on to found uh, People magazine. But the handling of the Zapruder film was by uh, Life Magazine and by C.D. Jackson. We'll, we'll talk about him in just a minute. We are going to turn to a book that we have used in the past. It's called Into the Nightmare by Joseph McBride, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Pippett. Was published in uh, soft cover by let me dig out the uh, requisite by Hightower Press, uh, Berkeley, California, copyright 2013. Now Douglas P. Horn, H-O-R-N-E, is a staff member of the Assassination Records Review Board, and he has written about the uh, deliberate manipulation of the Zapruder film. And one of the things he talks about is the <clears throat> the testimony or the account of the Zapruder film given by a CIA photographic analyst named Homer McMahon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N. And reading from Into the Nightmare by Joseph McBride, Horn cites a CIA photographic analyst, Homer McMahon, who helped to prove that the Zapruder film had been tampered with. The head of the color lab of the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center, or NPIC, in Washington, D.C., McMahon was interviewed by the Assassination Records Review Board in 1997. He said he examined one version of the Zapruder film on the weekend of the assassination and prepared enlargements of frames from the film for briefing boards, unquote. According to Horn, McMahon, quote, personally thought he saw JFK reacting to six to eight shots fired from at least three directions, unquote. The film McMahon worked on was brought to Washington by the Secret Service from a classified CIA film lab at the Kodak Main Industrial Facility in Rochester, New York. Horn reports that although McMahon thought he was working with the original film, this was not the camera original film developed in Dallas, but a version created with an optical printer in Rochester, a quote, a recreated, altered film masquerading as the original. Now, again, it was Life magazine 
and its publisher, C.D. Jackson, uh, who was a veteran psychological warfare uh, professional uh, with extensive connections to and experience in the U.S. intelligence community, who oversaw the handling of the Zapruder film. Life magazine published still frames from the Zapruder film that switched them around and left others out. I remember as a boy looking at the Life magazine uh, printing of the still photo, the still frames from the Zapruder film and scratching my head because I couldn't see really what was shown. It, it was inconclusive to the point of being uh, puzzling even to my uh, 14, perhaps 15-year-old self. As it turned out, they not only deliberately left out some frames, but they switched around the order of some of the frames. And as we will see, although it has never been shown, there is uh, eyewitness testimony from people who were in the motor game, including Deary Cabell, the wife of Dallas Mayor Earl Cabell, who was in turn the brother of General Charles P. Cabell, uh, Deputy Director of the CIA, who was fired by JFK along with Alan Dulles, who later served on the Warren Commission, for lying to him, that is to say JFK, about the Bay of Pigs invasion. Deary Cabell, like many other eyewitnesses, stated that at one point the motorcade actually came to a did halt. It stopped altogether. That obviously to give the snipers a stationary target so that they would not miss. But the handling of the Zapruder film by C.D. Jackson and Life Magazine and Henry Luce and Time Incorporated uh, in many ways was America's primary, the public's primary eyes and ears on the JFK assassination. Then later, Life magazine published a bizarre and obviously tampered with picture of Lee Harvey Oswald where he, his body is leaning on a really strange angle. The photo, the, the shadows, I should say, under his chin and the shadows of a foliage go in different directions. Uh, that cannot happen except perhaps on a planet in a solar system with more than one sun. Last time I checked, ours only had one. Of Life magazine on Henry Luce and its publisher, C.B. Jackson, a veteran CIA and, and uh, psychological warfare associate, and their handling of the Zapruder film, thereby basically manipulating America's eyes and ears on Daily Plaza, uh, Joseph McBride writes as follows in Into the Nightmare. Life decided not to sell the Zapruder film for TV or movie showing for reasons of both taste and competition, unquote. The decision was made by the magazine's publisher, C.B. Jackson, who was said to have been so disturbed by the images that he wanted to walk away the film until passions over the assassination had cooled. That seemed an odd decision for an organization supposedly devoted to reporting the news and making profit. As David R. Rohn, W-R-O-N-E, puts it in his 2003 book about the film, quote, why control of information about a president's murder belonged in the exclusive domain of Time Incorporated 
was never sufficiently explained, unquote. The point being that uh, Henry Luce, who had manipulated America's understanding or misunderstanding, really, of Chiang Kai-shek and his regime, did the same thing for the assassination of JFK, which put American Far Eastern policy back on that straight railway line alluded to by Stanley Hornbeck, whereas JFK was going to pull us out of Vietnam. More about C.B. Jackson. Jackson, who had been in charge of Life magazine since 1960 and worked for Time Incorporated off and on from 1931 until his untimely death in September of 1964, just nine days before the publication of the Warren Report, was no ordinary publisher. His lengthy background in U.S. government service suggested that his primary concern with the Zapruder film and that of his staunchly right-wing boss, Henry Luce, a key CIA media asset, was in keeping the lid on questions about whether Kennedy's death had been caused by a conspiracy by more than one shooter. One more time. Of C.B. Jackson. His lengthy background in U.S. government service suggested that his primary concern with the Zapruder film and that of his staunchly right-wing boss, Henry Luce, a key CIA media asset, was in keeping the lead on questions about whether Kennedy's death had been caused by a conspiracy by more than one shooter. Whether or not Jackson and Luce were working in direct collusion with the government to control the Zapruder film and its potential impact, that was the net effect of the magazine's actions. Jackson had been a specialist in psychological warfare for the government in World War II and was an expert in Cold War propaganda while serving President Eisenhower as special assistant to the President for International Affairs. While in that post, he was a liaison for Eisenhower with the CIA and the Pentagon. The Dwight D. Eisenhower Library has stated that Jackson's, quote, area responsibility was loosely defined as international affairs, Cold War planning, and psychological warfare, unquote. His main function was the coordination of activities aimed at interpreting world situations to the best advantage of the U.S. and her allies, and exploiting incidents which reflected negatively on the Soviet Union, communist China, and other enemies in the Cold War, unquote. After leaving that post with the Eisenhower administration in 1954, Jackson continued to consult with Eisenhower and write speeches for the president, giving what has been described as, quote, brash advice on how to deal with the Soviets, unquote. Jackson remained active with the government's anti-communist propaganda operation, Radio Free Europe, until he died at age 62, again only nine days before the Warren Report was published. Jackson's services to the government clearly did not end when he became publisher of Life in the same year Kennedy was elected. Like Time magazine, Life was a leading organ of Cold War propaganda and a behind-the-scenes collaborator with American intelligence operations. Life magazine is always pulling chestnuts out of the fire for the CIA, unquote, columnist Drew Pearson noted in his diary in 1958. 
Jackson's death, did not liberate the Zapruder film, which would not be shown on national television in the U.S. until 1975, shortly before Time Incorporated sold it back to the Zapruder family for a token one dollar. Stoley's 1992 article contended, quote, Because Jackson had served in military intelligence, the theories go, he had both a motive and an opportunity to influence how the magazine handled the Zapruder film. The truth is that all decisions involving its use or non-use were made only by editors, not by anyone on the publishing side, unquote. The loose Empire's careful doling out of still frames from the Zapruder film in the aftermath of the assassination was an effective way of controlling the public perception of the event. It was much easier to, quote, spin, unquote, the film's images if the film itself could not be seen. One of the things that was apparently done to the Zapruder film was editing out frames in which it appears, according to eyewitness testimony, that the motorcade actually came to a dead spot, that to give the snipers a stationary target at which to fire. One of the people who testified to that effect uh, was Deary Cabell, D-E-A-R-I-E. She was the wife of Dallas Mayor Earl Cabell, who again in turn was the brother of General Charles P. Cabell, Deputy Director of the CIA, who had been fired by JFK for lying to JFK about the Bay of Pigs invasion. He also had fired Alan Dulles, who then served on the Warren Commission. In Into the Nightmare, Joseph McBride writes as follows. Deary Cabell was never produced as an eyewitness to Oswald shooting the president. D.A. Henry Wade admitted, I never talked with her about it. When she testified to the Warren Commission in July of 1964, Mrs. Cabell said she had been facing the school book depository at the time the first shot rang out as their car was making the turn from Houston on the Elm. Quote, because I heard the direction from which the shot came, she, quote, jerked her head up and, quote, saw a projection out of one of those windows on the sixth floor. She was not sure which window, and so she, quote, did not know, unquote, what the rather long, unquote, projection was, because I did not see a hand or a head or a human form behind it. In addition to not identifying Oswald as a shooter, Mrs. Cabell testified to some points that contradicted the official story. Quote, I was acutely aware of the odor of gunpowder. I was aware that the motorcade stopped dead still. There was no question about that. One more time. I was acutely aware of the odor of gunpowder. I was aware that the motorcade stopped dead still. There was no question about that, unquote, and others testified to the same effect. Her testimony about the motorcade coming to a complete stop jives with that of numerous other witnesses, but is not consistent with what is seen in the Zapruder film, so her testimony help, helps prove one more time. So her testimony helps provide evidence that part of the film had been removed, most likely to cover up secret service activity after the shots, and a fatal lack of sufficient protection at the time of the fatal shots. Mrs. Cabell's, test Cabell's testimony about gunpowder suggested a shot 
were shots fired from ground level rather than on a high window, rather than a high window. She also said that when she turned her head forward after the first shot, I am completely aware of the people running up that hill, the grassy knoll. Well, obviously, if the shots had been fired exclusively from that window in the uh, sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, Deary Cabell would not have smelled gunpowder, and she testified to the effect that, in fact, she did smell gunpowder. So it was Henry Luce and Time Incorporated and Life magazine that were America's eyes and ears to a large extent on the assassination of JFK. And it was that assassination which once again put America's Asian policy back on that linear railway track alluded to as a metaphor by Stanley Hornbeck because JFK was going to pull the U.S. out of Vietnam. His assassination canceled that withdrawal. There is an excellent book about the reality of what uh, took place in Vietnam. I don't consider myself to be a shrinking violet. I found this book to be very, very hard to read. It is a no-punches-pulled account of just what the U.S. really did in Vietnam. And it also is a, a very objective book. It talks about the murderousness which the U.S. visited upon the Vietnamese people uh, in a non-judgmental, but yet he doesn't pull punches. He starts with the technocratic approach of the Pentagon under Robert McNamara, the extension of that technocratic approach in which the high-ranking officers, chiefly generals, were pressured to produce body counts, and talks about the isolation of young recruits in basic training and their reprogramming from a social standpoint, and the bureaucracy within the military and the State Department, which um, basically, like bureaucracies elsewhere, remain on that railway track. They wanted to move up in life, so uh, reports of atrocities which were basically standard operating procedure in Vietnam were covered up. The book is called Kill Anything That Moves, subtitled The Real American War in Vietnam, authored by Nick Purse, P-U-R-S-E. It is published in softcover by Picador, which I believe is a subsidiary of yes, Henry Holt and Company. And there is an interesting, among the reviews of the book that are printed from the publication proceedings put out by the U.S. Naval Institute, quote, an important addition to Vietnam War studies. Purse's study is not anti-veteran, anti-military, or anti-American. It does not allege that the majority of U.S. personnel in South Vietnam committed crimes. No, but it does point out that an awful lot of them did, and uh, it really is a book that should be read, won't be read. The title, Kill Anything That Moves, was one of the directives that was given to the units involved in the My Lai Massacre, which, as Nick Purse points out, was not an aberration. It was basically business as usual. 
And I don't know if we're going to have time to finish these excerpts in this program, but one of the things that uh, Nick Kurse points out, and again in uh, many programs, including AFA 11, for the record, 1095, as well as in this series, for the record, 1142, uh, we talked about the fact that uh, thousands of Japanese troops were kept under arms and used to fight the Chinese communists during the Chinese Civil War. It would be difficult to imagine anything that would be more effective at driving the Chinese people into the arms of the communists. And one of the things Nick Purse talks about is how the U.S., policy in Vietnam in many ways drew its inspiration from the murderous Japanese pursuit of the Sino-Japanese War overlapping World War II, uh, the rape of Nanking, and other things that we've spoken about in this series uh, talk about the Japanese policy vis-a-vis the Chinese. In Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. Nick Purse talks about uh, how the railway, the straight railway line that uh, Stanley Hornbeck talked about uh, proceeded not only through Dallas, Texas, but really through Tokyo and World War II. Writing in Kill Anything That Moves, Nick Purse says, Aside from augmenting the body count statistics, Free fire zones were also integral to another policy objective. By the way, free fire zones meant basically giving carte blanche to American combatants, artillery directors, people on um, uh, ships in the Gulf of Tonkin, air units, both helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft, B-52s, as well as infantry units with artillery and armor. That's what a free fire zone is. Basically, you kill anything in that zone, if you so wish. Aside from augmenting the body count statistics, free fire zones were also integral to another policy objective, driving villagers out of territory controlled by the National Liberation Front and into areas controlled by the Saigon government. These efforts were commonly known as pacification, unquote, but their true aim was to depopulate the contested countryside. Quote, the people are like water, and the army is like fish, unquote. Mao Zedong, the leader of the Chinese Communist Revolution, had famously written. American planners grasped his dictum and also studied the, quote, kill all, burn all, loot all, scorched earth campaigns that the Japanese army launched in rural China during the 1930s and early 1940s, for lessons on how to drain the sea, unquote. Not surprisingly, the idea of forcing peasants out of their villages was embraced by civilian pacification officials and military officers alike. One more time. The people are like water and the army is like fish, Mao Zedong, the leader of the Chinese Communist Revolution, had famously written. American planners grasped his dictum and also studied the kill-all, burn-all, loot-all, scorched-earth campaigns that the Japanese army launched in rural China during the 1930s and early 1940s for lessons on how to, quote, drain the sea, unquote. Not surprisingly, the idea of forcing peasants out of their villages was embraced by civilian pacification officials and military officers 
of like. And uh, one of the, uh, well, the, 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 much of this book is, is frankly very hard to read and uh, give you an idea of, of things that were basically more or less standard operating procedure, and that is what was called the achieving of double veteran status in addition to killing Vietnamese civilians in cold blood, uh, raping the women as well in the process. Nick Terse writes about this. At my line, a number of soldiers became, quote, double veterans, unquote, as the GIs referred to men who raped and then murdered women. As the writers Michael Bilton and Kevin Sim reported, quote, many women at my live were raped and sodomized, mutilated, and had their vaginas ripped open with knives or bayonets. One woman was killed when the muzzle of a rifle was inserted into her vagina and the trigger was pulled. In one sexual assault, three men held a teenage girl to the ground and violated her. Afterward, the girl was shot in the head and killed. As the record of the war indicates in copious fashion, however, such crimes were hardly confined to my lie. A Marine who had served in Quang Tin province, for example, testified that a nine-man squad entered the village ostensibly to capture a, quote, Viet Cong whore, unquote. The men located the woman, then serially raped her. The last one of them shot her through the head. Some, once some American soldiers had vulnerable women or girls at their mercy, there was no apparent limit to their brutality. In June of 1968, an elderly Vietnamese man with no connection to the revolutionary forces and two teenage girls alleged to be enemy nurses were detained by members of the 198th Light Infantry Brigade and taken to an American base for questioning. During their interrogation, the two girls, 17 and 14 years old, had their blouses torn open. They were viciously beaten with sticks, punched, slapped, kneed, and told that they would be murdered the next day. Then they were led to an area where U.S. troops were stationed for the night, and rumors of impending rape spread among the G.I.s. A sergeant began what would be a night of sexual sadism by raping the 17-year-old. At nearly the same time, a corporal raped the 14-year-old. Minutes later, the younger child was forced at knife point to perform oral sex on another soldier. This was followed by an attempted rape of the 14-year-old by still another soldier who eventually forced her to perform fellatio on him. Yet, Another soldier followed and forced the child to perform oral sex on him as well. Witnesses later said that she was seen being abused by at least two more GIs after this and was heard crying throughout the night. Meanwhile, two other soldiers may have had forcible intercourse with the older Vietnamese girl. Afterward, the sergeant who first raped her violated her for a second time. Then she was raped by the corporal who had first assaulted the younger girl. In the morning, the 17-year-old was seen covered in blood and in a state of shock while the younger teen was being raped again by another corporal. By this time, a witness said she was, quote, 
unconscious with her legs in the air over the guy's shoulders, unquote. The corporal who had first raped her said that while her new attacker whooped and laughed throughout the assault, the child was, quote, limp as a wet rag, unquote. It was, he testified, more like torture than sex, unquote. In all, the sergeant who began the series of rapes said each girl was violated some 10 to 20 times. Later that day, in an area crowded with soldiers, the elderly man was given a rifle and at gunpoint ordered to kill the younger girl. He fired, but succeeded only in blowing away part of the girl's chin and neck. She was then executed by an American. The older girl was left alive, though only barely so, and later disappeared altogether. Uh, there is a lot more in this uh, uh, book. The uh, One of the things that uh, Nick Turris chronicles is that one of the things that happened was because the officers were under pressure to produce body counts, it basically simply uh, resulted in the troops killing anyone that they wished or anyone that seemed to be, uh, uh, well, anyone who really got in the way. And then sometimes weapons were planted on them, sometimes who were just reported as enemy. And uh, so the body count ethic, professional ethic, in turn stemming from the technocratic uh, outlook on the war going right up to the Pentagon and Robert McNamara, super down through the command structure to the officers and then down to the men themselves. And uh, so just killing in order to produce dead, quote, enemy, unquote, became more or less standard operating procedure. In this book, Nick Terse, um he, he published the book and a lot of veterans who had basically seen these kinds of things in some cases, participated in them, uh, came forward to him sometimes anonymously, sometimes at uh, engage, speaking engagements. So this book served as something of a catharsis for a large number of Vietnam veterans. It is a very disturbing book. I found, the, again, I'm not a shrinking violet, but I found I could only read short sections of this book at one time. It is very, very disturbing. And the section I've just read is frankly representative and although, as noted in the U.S. Naval Institute review of the book, it does not allege that most of the, the American veterans participated in these sorts of things. A lot of them did. And uh, again, it, it's a remarkable book because it doesn't pull punches, and yet it is not anti-veteran, anti-American, or anything else, as noted in the uh, U.S. Naval Institute review. However, he also, Nick Pierce, those talk about the racism, the anti-Asian racism that had much to do with the ability of uh, American military personnel in Vietnam to do what they did. Well, at, at the core of that, what was called the MGR, the Mere Gook Rule. However, we will talk about that in our next program because we are all out of time in this one, and uh, we will uh, continue with discussion of this very important and very disturbing book, Kill Anything That Moves. However, that concludes for the record program number 1210, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 17. This is being recorded on October 27th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.